Today on the show, we'll be talking about the new Chuck Lorre sitcom, The United States of Al, and we'll be discussing the sometimes controversial Dr. Mehmet Oz. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be talking about Dr. Mehmet Oz. Yeah, Mehmet Oz. I like the Mehmet Oz so that we don't confuse him with all the other Dr. Oz's out there, huh? Well, we'll get to him in a second. But first, we're going to be talking about the new CBS sitcom, The United States of Al. So, Ali, I wanted to talk to you about this new sitcom that just premiered a few weeks ago. It's The United States of Al. One of the executive producers is Chuck Lorre. He's well known from other shows, Two and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory, Two Broke Girls. And this show, even before it came out, has had some controversy associated with it. So I guess there's two aspects to the controversy. One is the premise of the show itself, and we can talk about the specifics of the show in a second. But the other issue is the casting of the main character who's from Afghanistan in the show, but is actually played by an, a South African actor of Indian descent. I want to kind of get your thoughts on this controversy. And maybe later on, we can actually talk about how we actually feel about the show, because I think we've watched a couple episodes each. We did. This is a very loaded episode for us. This is a very loaded discussion. And as soon as I saw discussion boards going up about this show coming up, I was like, oh, I definitely want to talk to you about this because it's very loaded personally, professionally for me, and then just sort of societally, you know, it, it hits on a lot of levels. Now, before we go even into the show itself, let's talk about Chuck Lorre a little bit, right? Because Chuck Lorre is going to invite hate no matter what happens. Now, what you have to understand is Chuck Lorre, okay, you named a few of his shows. I wouldn't watch most of those shows. Those are just not my thing. Big Bang Theory, not really. I remember Big Bang Theory. I used to be on a show called George Strombolopoulos Tonight. We would get like 250,000 eyes on our show or we'd be really happy. And then I'd look at the screen, you know, we'd have a chart measuring what else is getting views during that same time frame. And Big Bang Theory, this is Canada, 1.2 million people would be watching Big Bang Theory. Yeah, so one in 30 Canadians essentially was watching it. I mean, my parents loved it. It was extremely popular. In fact, all of his shows have been extremely popular. They have been. And I think we get a little bit snobby. We, we forget. This is why Trump was elected, man. We forget about middle America. We forget about middle Canada. Yeah, it's not for me. Two and a half men, not my thing. Did I watch a bunch of episodes because there was nothing else to do? Sure. But I would have loved to have done anything else. So Chuck Lorre already, because of these things that he's backed, because of the choices he's made, he's just associated with trash. However, over the last few years, over the last decade, I think he's made some strides and everything does take time. Now, he has probably had what you would call huge blind spots for diversity and casting and all that and shows with some some depth to them. But this show Mom, mm -hmm. which came out, you know, Anna Faris is uh, the alcoholic daughter of, gosh, what is her name? Man? Alison Jenny. 
Allison Jenny, Oscar award winning or Oscar nominated Allison Jenny. Oscar award winning. Award winning Allison Jenny, who also is an alcoholic. I mean, this this is shows like they're sitcoms with depth. Already you're in the sitcom world and they're going to be pretty cheesy shows, right? Kaminsky Method is a great show, okay? Lest he be accused of being ageist, Kaminsky was great. Bob Hart's Abishola, have not watched it yet, want to actually watch it. It's getting a lot of good press. And these are all also Chuck Lorre uh, executive producer produced shows. Right. And so I think we're at this you don't know which way things are going to tip when you hear about a Chuck Lorre show. Is it going to be like Mom, which I think is progressively the two characters have substance abuse issues, the two main characters. That's progressive for a half-hour sitcom on network TV these days. Or is it going to be like two broke girls and the characterization of Han Lee, who I believe was the chef who owned the diner or worked in the diner that the two broke girls worked in. I watched one episode. You'd have to put a gun in my mouth to make me watch a second one. Awful show. I was about to say the exact same words. I watched it. I'm like, this is insane. I can't believe how racist this is. I'm not watching this again. And so where is he going to fall on this? And that's what my first thought was when I heard about this show. Right. Now, you have a show, United States of Al, trailer comes out, the hate machine starts moving, okay? People are like, this is awful. Just the trailer has been watched and people are in a bad mood. They don't like what they see. A white person befriends a brown man is not an idea for a show, somebody tweeted, right? That's one that kind of summarizes up a lot of the hate. It's a brown person, and uh, why are they being treated this way? Why can't you just have a normal brown person? Why does the white person have to be the savior of the brown person? So on and so forth. I think a lot of those comments were not connected to reality, as we'll get into us, if you know the background of the show and who it was based on and how it was created. And then also, I was very dismayed to see this group of South Asian actors that I'm part of on, I don't know, some chat that we have. Hatred, just hatred. This is awful. And oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Now, look, man, I know a couple of actors who have an incredible amount of integrity and they would have never done this role. They would have said right away, like, oh, I don't even want to audition for something because I'm not Afghani. This is small. That's a small group. Most actors I know, like a series lead, series regular on a Chuck Lorre show, you've basically won the lottery. So you're telling me people are going to turn down a lottery ticket because of, uh, oh, I didn't like the way this is. I think it's like hatred from the outside, but many people would have done the same thing in their case. Now, a show like this, number one, people did not even realize this when the hate started. Reza Aslan, who I'm a big fan of. He had a show on CNN for a while. He has a number of books out. I own one of the books called God. Didn't read all of it. The God stuff gets a little heavy. I do like his writing. I do like a lot about Reza Aslan. His interview with Mark Marin is one of my favorites. Very, very intelligent guy. He is Persian background, but he's one of the writers. I think he's the head writer. Then two Afghani writers were in the room. Now you have three brown guys in a room, a writing room. That's already huge. If you don't know that, you should be aware of that. You have three brown guys in a writing room. Two of them are Afghani. The character, Al, United States of Al, is Afghani. I mean, that is, if that's not progress, I'm sorry. I don't know what people want, like, immediately to change. But for a guy like Chuck Lorre, for the guy who made Two Broke Girls, this is huge. This is enormous. They're making the effort. And they said they auditioned. Now, if we go into this particular actor here, they auditioned 180, 200 people for this role. But it's not easy to do sitcom. And not everybody can do it. Not everyone can read a teleprompter. Not everyone is a natural in, in a variety of different environments. Not everyone can do theater just because they can do television. 
I'm sure they tried their best. I'm sure they wanted an Afghani guy, but they also wanted a show that resonated with the American public and didn't turn people away because of the acting. So they went with this guy and I don't have any ill will towards him. You know, I think if I know anything about the CBS budget, and I do know a little bit about it, they probably had an acting coach and dialect coach and all these people on board to try to make it as authentic as possible. I'm sure Reza Aslan and, and the writers wanted that to be the case. So, I mean, I think this is an example of people doing their best and moving in the right direction. That's what I think this show is. So maybe we can just broaden the topic for a sec. So what do you think about actors playing people of a different ethnicity? And I'm, of course, prefacing that by knowing that you have played people of different ethnicities and sometimes made up ethnicities, maybe in some... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Konami ambassador. You never heard of Konami? That's because it doesn't exist. That's a role I played on Designated Survivor. Now, that's why I said right from the beginning, this touches me personally and professionally because, dude, I don't look like what I am. You don't know. Very few people look at me and go, that's a Pakistani. Now, grow out my mustache a little bit. They're like, okay, that creepy mustache is for sure Pakistani or Latino of some kind, Latino gangster, shaved head and mustache. But really, with my head looking like it is, my various character traits and all that, I don't look like what I am. So do I just quit acting? Is that what, or I just wait for the Pakistani roles where people are going to be like, okay, he doesn't look what he is. I mean, the first acting class I took, the homework was find five people who you don't know, preferably, and ask them, what do you look like? Because acting is not about what you think you can play. It's what, what people think of when they see you. And that acting coach told us that he was trying to be like this young detective and play these different roles. And he was in his late 40s and he was still trying to play late 30s. You know, his hair was thinning and he wasn't getting roles. It was like a good seven or eight years he wasn't getting roles. What does he do? He was going for the wrong parts, basically. Finally, he shaves his head. He grows out his mustache. All of a sudden, he gets high school wrestling coach. He gets head of a police department, a police chief. He gets all these different roles because he embraced who he was and what he looked like. He goes, okay, I'm an older guy. I'm a heavier set older guy, and I'm just going to lean into it. That's a big part of acting. What do you look like? And so you will have people who look like a certain thing playing that role, even though they're not that. And one of my favorite actors of all time is Cliff Curtis. I saw Cliff Curtis years ago in a movie out of New Zealand, Once Were Warriors, one of my favorite movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, I mean, what the hell are you doing? It's from the 90s. So hurry up and see it. But also he was a massive, awful creep of a human being. And then when I see him over the years, I, I completely forgot it was the same guy. It's like, I know this guy from somewhere. We didn't have IMDb at our fingertips. And he has played Colombian drug lord. He has played Latino gangsters. He has played Arabs, uh, Arab terrorists. He's really done so much. And what he does is something called character acting. And so people who are like, they should have got an Afghani. This is ridiculous. Do you want, should character acting not exist anymore? Because he's Maori. He's from the Maori peoples of New Zealand. Should he only do Maori work? Is that what we're saying? Is that like, because if you're saying that, you don't really understand how acting works. The, the key is you have to do, in my opinion, the due diligence in finding the right person for the role. It seems like they did it. They did their best to make it an Afghani. They couldn't do it. At least the proof is there. At least I don't have three white men white men telling me that we did our best. I have Reza Aslan in interviews saying they did their best. That's pretty damn good. 
And eventually what you want is what Cliff Curtis did. He was in Fear the Walking Dead. That's what uh, that TV show, that's where I've seen him most recently. And in that, yeah, I recognize Cliff Curtis, but I don't think he was playing any particular nationality. He was just playing himself at the beginning of the zombie apocalypse, which is continued in The Walking Dead, which more people have probably seen. So obviously that's what you want. Like this kind of like you could be playing anybody, but the main character happens to be a person of color. But stories are so diverse and not everything can be Star Wars, right? Not everything can be like, oh, he played an alien. Oh, but why was he a brown alien? Like you can't, you know, like that's great. That's like paradise to play these roles where you can do anything you want because ethnicity and color means nothing. But life is like a million stories happening at different times involving different people from different ethnicities. And sometimes you want to tell the stories because of the ethnicity and because of the background. And I agree with you. I think it's clear that these producers did their due diligence. And as you mentioned, I'm sure a lot of times there's no due diligence done. There's like, that guy's brown skin. Let's have him play whatever role, terrorist number two. You know what I mean? And they're like, actually, that guy is Hispanic. He's not even a Middle Eastern or South Asian or Pakistani or anything like that. So I can see what you're saying. And I think it's all in the motive, right? If the motive is you, you know, you try and cast someone from that background and you look around, or if you just say, oh, who cares, whatever, all brown people look the same. I think that's really the difference, what you're saying. Kumail Nanjiani, a terrific comedian, has this joke. He talks about, I think it's Call of Duty. He talks about some first-person shooter game that he was playing. And he is walking through the streets of Karachi. And he's like, this is amazing. He's born in Karachi. He grew up in Karachi. He's like, oh my God, this, I'm going to see like streets that I know. I, I will know this neighborhood. As the first-person shooter in the game looks up and the street signs are in Arabic. And he's like, that is the world's most simple Google search, what language is spoken in Pakistan? That's all they had to do. He goes, I can count every single stubble on my own chin in this game. Like there's no detail left untouched. And yet street signs are in Arabic, you know? So th this is the kind of laziness that often brown people have to face. So I understand where the anger comes from, but I think also they've done a good job. Like look at Chuck Lorre's track record. This guy is moving in the right direction. Totally. And I agree. And so this kind of gets back to what you were saying before. So there was all this outrage, not just at the casting, which we just talked about, but there was outrage just at the premise of the show. And Reza Aslan actually tweeted, he's like, you are basing this on a 30 second commercial or trailer because the show has not come out yet. There's no way people knew that to make a decision. And it was a great moment of everyone's a critic and everyone has an opinion. It was that in one bit and nobody cares about context and nobody cares about background. They saw Chuck Lorre, many people already triggered by that name, and then they watched the trailer and those two things put together were all they needed to see. That said, mm -hmm. what were your thoughts? What were your thoughts on the show so far? Now, they only have two episodes out. At the time that we're recording this, we were only able to watch two episodes. So what do you think? Right. So, and again, you know, this is where we have to decide which way does this tip in terms of a Chuck Lorre sitcom? Is it the blatant racism of two broke girls? Is it maybe the more subtle, nuanced messaging of mom? Or is it somewhere in between, right? Is, is it kind of nothing? So I actually thought the show is not too bad. Again, I agree with you. My opinion, I don't really find Chuck Lorre's, the humor in those sitcoms terribly funny. But what struck me about this is it's very interesting. So it's not like Al, who's the main character in it, is 
the magical brown person or magical black person as you heard he's just a friend of his who they became friends in Afghanistan. So the main character, Riley, played by Parker Young, who's a, quite a good actor, I find, he was in Afghanistan and his translator is Al. And they were friends there in the past and they developed this bond. And then Riley comes back to America and tries to endeavor to get Al here, to move to America and to immigrate. The very first scene of the show is him is Al arriving into in America. And... I think that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, they are definitely come across in the show as friends. There's no subordinate. They definitely are friends and they kind of needle each other, but are supportive of one another. So I like that. And what I really like is the show deals with the after effects of war and PTSD. It's very clear Riley suffers from PTSD and he is excessive drinking. He's kind of irritable, moody. His marriage fell apart due to numerous bad choices he made likely as a consequence of PTSD. And Riley's sister plays a widow whose husband was best friends with Riley and he died in Afghanistan and her dealing with that death of your enlisted husband dying while performing their duty to their country. So these are our heavy themes that we're talking about. And the fact that they can kind of address these subtly, it doesn't hit you over the head with it in, in the episodes is I think, I think it's, it's not bad. And even some of the jokes that were kind of made about Al being Muslim or Afghani, like Riley wants to go visit his ex-wife without Al coming. So he, he told Al he was going to a, a pork restaurant. So Al declines. He says he won't come. I'm like, that's kind of funny. I find that funny as a Muslim person. I don't know. So I don't know. That was were kind of my thoughts. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I can't extract my bias here. So number one, as you said, Chuck Lorre comedy is not my thing, right? My favorite comedy in the world, Larry Sanders, Arrested Development. These are the kind of shows I like. The last time I probably enjoyed a laugh track was Cheers. You know, like when there's a laugh track, I'm usually a little less connected to the show. So that format, that multicam format, multicam sitcom, that's not really my thing. And then you add the Chuck Lorre element. It hasn't typically been my comedy. However, what you're talking about, number one, these heavy issues that are dealt with, and number two, an actual program that exists. It's a There's a nonprofit organization called No One Left Behind, and I encourage people to look up No One Left Behind. This is an organization that helps these translators leave Afghanistan after these soldiers leave because their lives are at risk while they're with American soldiers because they're helping the enemy, quote unquote, and sometimes no quotes required. They're helping the enemy. Okay, so they do that for whatever their reasons are. They need money. They need some sort of a support. They have skills that make them good for this job, and they're willing to do whatever. Once those soldiers leave and they don't have the protection of the U.S. Army, basically, they have targets on their back. This program, this organization exists to try to safely extract these translators to America, maybe other countries as well, and give them sort of a fresh start in a safer world for them. So it's something that really exists. So first of all, here's my thoughts. I picture somebody going to a Hollywood exec and saying, what do you think of a sitcom where we deal with a soldier who has severe PTSD, his sister lost her husband in war, and then they have a translator come to America to their home, and it's really like the show is named after the translator. I mean, a hundred for hundred Hollywood execs would have said no to that show a few years ago. So right away, I'm just like, I like that this show exists. That thought gets old after a while. After a while, you still should be funny. So this is right on the line. This is like in the middle of the road. I don't think it's not funny, but I don't find it funny. 
I need to give it a few more episodes and I will. I will stubbornly stick to this because I love where this is coming from. If you look up some of the articles, you see who Riley is based on. You see who Al is based on. There's real people consulting for this show, people who had these exact scenarios happen. And the more I saw the hate and then the more I read about this show, I was like, I'm on board with this show and I want to support it. Now, at the end of the season, if they still haven't made me laugh, I can't bring myself to watch season two, but I will give it a chance because of the backstory, because of what they're trying to accomplish, because of the heavy themes in a sitcom. I like that. I think that's important, man. Life is heavy. Life. Yeah, I think, you know, A for effort, B minus for delivery so far, but I think it's just around the corner for B, maybe even a B plus, dare to dream. You know? And we all know that, uh, again, I'm not trying to defend them or anything, but sitcoms sometimes take a while to find a groove. And that's been clear with The Office, two of my favorites, The Office and Parks and Recreation. Those took a good season to really get going and to really find the groove of their characters. Because comedy writing, you know, again, from an outsider, it appears tough. And so I would agree with you. I think it's worthwhile to just give this a try. See if you like it, especially if you liked other Chuck Lorre sitcoms. Then I think you should definitely give this a try. All right, Asif. Something I have done more than spending time on Chuck Lorre shows is watching Dr. Oz. All right. Now, everybody, whether you watched him or not, you know of him. Here's the short bio. He has an undergrad degree in biology from Harvard. He then played on Harvard's football team. He played water polo. He has an MD and an MBA. Okay. And MBA is from Wharton. That is an Ivy League degree as well. Obviously a high achieving human being. Uh, he has served as vice chairman professor in the Department of Surgery at uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital. He still performs operations occasionally. He directs Columbia's Cardiovascular Institute and Integrative Medicine Program. I think that's all one thing. He's a guy. He knows heart health better than many many people in the field even. Where did it all go wrong, dude? Plus, he's easy on the eyes, Asif. He's easy on the eyes. Many women and men have swooned over Dr. Oz. He put Turkish people on the map. No one had ever heard of a Mehmet. He's a Mehmet, for God's sake. He's a Mehmet. He looks good. He's done good. And now there is only hate. Where did it all go wrong? And I shouldn't say there's only hate. You know, I, I'm going to take that back. There's still so much love, but there's a rising tide of hatred for you know, we'll talk about how popular his daytime show is. It's extremely popular. So early on, he was featured as a health expert on Oprah's show. And then he was offered to produce a syndicated series through Harpo Productions, which is Oprah's production company. And then he had his own show, started in 2009. And remember, this is a daily weekday show, just like Oprah's show was. And he starts to talk about medicine and different features every day. The issue then comes, though, there was a study done in 2014 by the British Medical Journal. We call it the BMJ. That's what we call it in the medical fields. I don't know if you plebiscites or whatever. Thanks for pulling back the medical curtain and letting us know about the ins and outs there. The BMJ. Okay. And so they did a study looking at Dr. Oz and some other medical talk shows and found that 50% of the recommendations either had no scientific evidence or actively contradicted medical research. So the question is, what is the problem here? He has so many credentials as such an established person. So what is the issue? And to be honest with you, a lot of the advice he gives is sound advice, right? The way I think about his show, I knew we we're doing this episode soon. So I watched like, I don't know, 
10 to 12 episodes of the show to kind of see where things are at now. You're doing a PhD thesis on Dr. Oz? That's a lot of Dr. Oz. It will be published in the BMJ, if you know that reference from a minute ago. I know that's a callback. Good for you. There you go. See, I'm learning this comedy. Still not funny. So when you watch the show, I would separate what he talks about into three different categories. One is good advice, solid work, how can you maintain a healthy heart, get good sleep, exercise, a good diet. These are all positive messages. And with COVID, he talks a lot about COVID. It's on everybody's mind these days. But he has world experts talking about COVID. He talks about vaccines. He talks about uh, social distancing. When could this be over? The different waves that are occurring. Very solid stuff. So that's good. Then he has stuff which I put in the middle which is like, you're probably exaggerating a bit, but it's still reasonable. For example, he had one recent segment where they were talking about people who lose their sense of smell with COVID. As you know, that can be a symptom, sometimes an early symptom. How would you get that back? Because some people are not recovering from this lack of sense of smell. And how could you get that back? So he's like, you know, smell coffee and then do another container with eucalyptus, another with orange rinds, you know, like try and get the stimulate your olfactory nerves, which are the nerves that go to your nose. Okay, it's probably not true. There's probably no evidence for that, but it's probably not a bad thought and seems reasonable. But then he will also talk about things that are just insane. He will talk about cumin being used to combat autoimmune diseases. And he's had some really controversial things on his show. He's had people who think it's possible to, quote, repair gay people with conversion therapy, which, I mean, every person who's knowledgeable in the psychology, psychiatry fields has totally debunked conversion therapy. It's offensive to even talk about. He has them, he has on. them on, but he doesn't say whether he's for it or right. against. How so does he present these guests? He just talks to them and interviews them, you know, and just listens to what they have to say and ask them questions. But this is the issue, Ali, is that he doesn't challenge them. So he has said genetically modified foods cause cancer. And I know people have concerns about GMO foods. They don't cause cancer. That's been shown. He talked about arsenic levels in apple juice and how it's dangerous. And a lot of these would be, uh, have been debunked. The FDA reprimanded him in 2011 for that report on arsenic and apple juice. And he was brought to a Senate committee hearing in 2014 for peddling ineffective and harmful products. Wait, peddling products. So does he have his own line as well? Is it right. like I have now arsenic-free apple juice, Dr. Oz's apple juice? Is that what we're talking about? That is true. So they said that he was peddling, but he defends himself by saying, I do not profit from these companies. I have no investment in them. They're not a Dr. Oz marketed. Now, they will stay the day after the show airs or the hour after it airs in your market as seen on Dr. Oz. In fact, there's one example of something called the Oz effect. You know, these neti pots, neti pots that you use to clean out your sinuses, right? When those appeared on Dr. Oz, the sales for them rose by 12,000%, not by 12,000 units, by 12,000%. And online searches grew by 42,000%. That's a lot of human snot floating out there, huh? It's gross. So there is this effect that he has on these companies. And so it's true he does not directly do that. And let's be clear, that's not what we're accusing him of. He does not directly profit from them. However, he certainly does make money from advertisers by having these people on. He gets money from syndication, which is a huge cash flow for these types of programs, and from advertising. And He does have these products on his show, and he does make advertising revenue secondarily from the advertisers that are on. So it's not direct, but I don't know. One could probably argue that there is some profit to be made, but 
you know, he says that there's not. So that's fine. But the issue then comes is why are you talking about all these different categories? Is it these kind of three categories I compartmentalize his advice in? And even the same episode, you'll be talking about the efficacy of the COVID vaccine and why it's so important to be vaccinated. And then we'll talk, be talking about using cumin to combat your autoimmune disease. And they're not the same level of evidence. So where is the questioning, right? Where is the debate? Why isn't he discussing with these people who are coming in with no scientific evidence? He just kind of presents it all. And he says, I'm just trying to present people their options because they're sophisticated enough to make the decisions for themselves. Incorrect. That's his first mistake. But then why don't you present to them the pros and cons as well? Because he knows he's a very smart person, as you established. I can only guess. I don't know. I mean, I've never talked to him. I have no idea why he does that. But I do know there is pressure, obviously, for ratings. And there's also pressure for something new every day. You need to have segments. And he does, you know, four segments, five segments, a show. There's pressure to get that. And why does he use words like startling, breakthrough, revolutionary, miracle? Because that's what gets ratings. Get eyes on. Yeah, that's a good gets the eyes on you. It's very interesting that you think like that because I don't think a lot of people do because that's where my mind goes immediately. I, the first thing I think of when you talk about these various, you know, I don't want to call them scandals or whatever. The first thing I think of is if he was once a week, if he was a weekly show, he probably wouldn't be in any hot water at all because it's exactly what you think. And the, the industry, the television industry doesn't care about the actual person. So they sort of like, you know, they'll work you and they'll work you and they'll work you. And if he's the type to be like, okay, I can't stop books, podcast, I'm a guest on this show. I got to do this. I got to represent this. I got to do a talk somewhere. Plus I got to put out five before you know it, you're turning to everybody's beloved apple juice. That's what like this is drive for constant content can create. Seen it a bunch of times. All that said, I still don't understand why he was Donald Trump's appointment for the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. That right away puts him in the back trunk for me. Everything else is excusable. Exactly. And the people that was criticized, you're choosing pundits over experts. There's lots, thousands probably of qualified researchers in the US who could speak to fitness, exercise, nutrition, but yet you chose this guy. And I don't know him, but in general, it makes me wonder, does he actually believe these? So for example, he established, you know, Reiki therapy, this channeling your energy. They have that in the operating room. He hired a Reiki master to come into the operating room to harness the body's own energy to help patients survive risky things like a heart transplant. Okay, so this suggests he believes in it. This is not just having somebody on to have their opinion. This is in the surgery room. But Reiki, I'm sure you're about to tell me there's no evidence for it working. Is that right? That's correct. There is no evidence for that working. So I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. Does he do that to further his brand? I don't know. Does he do it because he really believes it? I don't know. Either way, there's something questionable about it, right? You're either questioning someone's motives or you're questioning their beliefs. And that's what's, I think, so problematic. Well, it is odd because you also have a medical education and you have one that's, you probably have less of an education than Dr. Oz. He also has an MBA. You know, I don't want to make you feel bad, Asif. You're also a very good person. Crying but, quietly. Yes, exactly. So you would think that he is like yourself, annoyingly focused on evidence, but apparently he missed that day of class. 
I don't know. And there's reports, I will link to some of these news articles on our website, where these physicians talk about they have a list of things and they ask the patient, well, why are you bringing me this list? Where did this come from? He's like, the only doctor I trust, Dr. Oz. And I was uh, mentioning Trump also because Dr. Oz was in hot water over this hydro, I've forgotten the name. Hydroxychloroquine. That's it. I can't believe Trump committed that to memory and I can't, but he was all on board with this product, again, without evidence, but it's thought it would help in the battle against COVID? Both, yeah, both Trump and Dr. Oz. And to be fair, there was some reports that were quickly discredited. So again, you know, people want to hear that there's a miracle cure, but we know that's not the real world. And that's kind of one of the points of this whole podcast that we do is medicine is complex and there are debates and controversies in medicine. It's not clear cut. And we, we see this all the time, particularly with COVID, as we've talked about, things change all the time. But part of it is just being honest with people and saying, you know, there was this evidence, it came out, this is not true. In terms of Dr. Oz retracting things that he said or claimed or guests have claimed, I, I'm not sure how often that occurs. And then there is one other very recent controversy and it's maybe the most heinous controversy of all. Some people feel it's completely un unforgivable. And that, of course, has to do with... What is Jeopardy? <laughs> you got it, buddy. You played along. Good for you. He has been... What is it? Selected as a temporary host? Is that what they've said? What's the official line on what? Right. So after Alex Trebek passed away, they put in a bunch of temporary hosts and they will make their decision soon about a permanent host. But he was one of them and he just completed his run recently. And people don't like it. No, there was over 500 of the show's former contestants. They signed an open letter to the show's executive producer saying that they believe that Dr. Oz stands in opposition to everything that Jeopardy stands for. And they talked about some of the things we talked about, promoting supplements that do nothing, talking about and legitimizing gay conversion therapy, some dangerous cures for autism, uh, you know, cures in quotation marks. We could talk at a later episode perhaps about do people with autism, is it something that needs to be cured? And then the hydroxychloroquine recently. And they said, you know, what kind of a message is this sending to our LGBTQ plus contestants, to our autistic contestants and our viewers? And of course, these are smart people, right? These are all Jeopardy contestants who took exception to this. 500 of them too. That's no joke. That's no joke. Anyway, hopefully they got that message loud and clear. Weird that he would be there to begin with. I mean, it's got to be the most difficult job in Hollywood right now to replace Alex Trebek, one of the most beloved, intelligent, charming men to ever set foot in Los Angeles. It's interesting that they would even think that Oz should have a shot at it. So what are your thoughts on Dr. Oz at this point in time now? Does this guy just ride into the sunset and die as far as you're concerned? Or are there things that he can do to undo some of the damage that you think he's done? I think what he should do is, in an ideal world, he should move more into presenting actual things that have scientific evidence base, or at least if he's going to have people on who are presenting alternative or complementary medicine or things that don't have evidence for them, he should challenge them and have a discussion with them about it and what may be true and what may not be. I mean, that I think would just be the responsible thing to do. You're undermining people's confidence in medicine and misleading them. And I think there are some ethical issues there. Again, that's one of the things that 
I'm hoping to do on a much smaller scale, obviously, on this podcast, right? To present the complicated issues and the pros and cons of different things and not to make blanket statements. Because it's easy for me to say, Dr. Oz is amazing, he's a godsend, or he's a quack, he should be disregarded. I don't think that's true. I think he's in the middle. There is a middle ground there. And I think that's when discussion and debate comes is when you talk about anything, whether it's comedy, entertainment, medicine, when there's a middle ground, because that's where the discussion happens and debate happens. Well said, Asif. Anyway, shut up for a second while we wrap up this show, huh? Just kidding. All right. Well, that is the episode today. Anything to promote on your end, Asif? Just for everybody to subscribe to the podcast, Apple Tunes or Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. What about you, Ali? Well, yeah, I'll just add to that that we are Dr. V Comedian on social media and drversuscomedian.com is our website. If you'd like to go through our past episodes, we've already got a small chunk of episodes that we're proud of with a lot of good content that you can very easily find ways to weigh in on. Contact us. Also, if you'll respond to people directly, I'm sure. Eventually, I'll perhaps do the same. I assume people are going to be in touch about medical things. That's why, I mean, you don't want me replying about medical stuff. I don't know a goddamn thing, except for what I'm learning from you right here. StandUpAli.com is my website. Feel free to head there to find out anything that I have upcoming. In June, is it June? In June, I just found out I'll be opening for Sean Majumder at a comedy drive-in in Peterborough, Ontario, outside of Toronto. So just, I had to share that because I love Sean. I love the idea of performing at a drive-in theater, but most of all, I love performing comedy and just the idea that I'd finally get a chance to be up there on a stage with a mic in front of me again is great. Don't get me wrong. I love rubbing my face against this pop filter, but comedy does something for me that I'm excited for. So all those dates that come up, they'll be on my website throughout the summer. Okay, so that's our show for today. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.